Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. Uh, this is a podcast that looks at uh, social and political campaigns that have made an impact on the world in some way. And um, today my two, uh, yes, two guests uh, are Simon Wright and Kirsty McNeil. And uh, they were both at the centre of campaigning for universal access to AIDS treatment in the 2000s when the issue you know, went from being really a domestic issue in rich countries to becoming a global uh, phenomenon and um, also became a development issue, one that rose very quickly up the global uh, political agenda. Now, um, Simon is currently Director of International Development at Save the Children UK and led the organisation's work on child survival for over 10 years. But previously, he worked in public health commissioning in the in the UK's National Health Service. He was an advisor to the UK Parliament on HIV and health. While working for ActionAid UK, he led its HIV campaigning and later established a European network called Action for Global Health. Kirsty uh, is the Executive Director of Policy Advocacy and Campaigns, also at Save Children UK. Previously, she was an advisor to the senior leadership of some of the world's leading charities, and before that was special advisor in Number 10 Downing Street, writing speeches for Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Um, she uh, came to Downing Street having led the policy influencing work of data in Europe, um, and that's uh, Bob Geldof and Bono's advocacy organisation. And before that, she was involved in the Make Poverty History campaign while also managing the Stop AIDS campaign. And, and it was there that Simon and Kirsty it was during that period that Simon and Kirsty were intimately involved in the campaign to get AIDS antiretrovirals to everyone that needed it. And they, they reflect, as you hear, on some of the ways in which... You know, they helped and they, their colleagues and, and allies helped to to launch the issue really up the, the global agenda, but also how, you know, where there's an element of sort of fortunate circumstances, how the stars aligned really for success in a way that perhaps may not be that easy to repeat. Uh, so here's the interview. campaigns that changed the world. I'm here with uh, Simon and Kirsty at Save the Children and we're here to talk about um, HIV campaigning in, in the 2000s. Um, so I'm just going to ask uh, Simon and Kirsty to briefly explain their roles in the campaign starting with you Simon. So uh, if you're looking back at the 2000s I started in London at the, at the all-party parliamentary group on AIDS in 1999 so that was kind of a first involvement in HIV as a global development issue, uh, was during that time. And then I went to ActionAid in 2002, and so I was there in the years running up to and just after the Make Poverty History campaign. And I got my start in this issue as an Oxfam volunteer campaigner. So underneath the banner of Make Trade Fair, the price of medicines was a really big focus. There was the Cut the Cost sub-campaign under Make Trade Fair, which I 
did at various festivals all around the country as a volunteer campaigner. And then I went on to run the Stop AIDS campaign, which was a coalition of, at that point, 80 NGOs and other organisations that focused on treatment access. And thereafter, my involvement with the issue kept going through my time at Data, which became the One Campaign. But at the time, it was Data, which stood for Debt, AIDS, Trade, Africa. So AIDS was a very right. big focus for Data. Mm. Yeah. Uh, just before we get into sort of the, how the campaign worked and why it was so successful, can you just say a bit about what's sort of what's been achieved by the campaign in terms of you know, policy change and then real actual impact on the ground, just in, in mm. broad terms? I mean, I suppose if you look back at that time, what definitely happened was uh, a huge commitment of aid that came from G8 countries particularly the US through its PEPFAR program, but through other mechanisms through the Global Fund, that did start to buy a lot of antiretrovirals for people in low- and middle-income countries. And I guess there was also quite a step change in the way that medicines were accessed because the principle of generics and compulsory licensing of generics got established during that time. So a lot of people are alive, I think, because of that, because that's a real... A clear example of where aid actually bought something that wasn't going to be bought by governments. And so, and if you can see that the HIV uh, epidemic has reduced and is perhaps kind of going down now, that's probably partly a result from that, although there's lots of other factors as well. And just in terms of what remains to be done, I mean, from where you're sitting, you know, I mean, I suppose 15 years on from. I feel like the high watermark of this campaign perhaps, you know, there's still you know, looking online a lot of activity and a lot of, you know, asks about HIV, so what, what is there left to be done, do you think? I think one of the reasons there's still a bit of energy around it is because there's lots of people living with HIV who simply wouldn't have been living with HIV without the success of the campaign so when Simon and I were doing treatment activism in the run up to the Glen Eagles summit, the Glenelg's G8 summit, there was only 100,000 people in Africa getting access to treatment. Mm -hmm. 100,000. And Mm -hmm. now there are around 6 million. And that's a function, as Simon says, of the success of the campaign. But actually the bit that I'm more interested in is that's possible because we won an argument at a much bigger level that a lot of donors at the time said, we just have to write off the people that are already infected. Mm -hmm. They're going to die anyway. Their lives are not worth saving. Let's focus instead on preventing a new generation of people getting HIV. And there was a big focus on preventing mother-to-child transmission, which is, of course, enormously important, and uh, preventing young people contracting HIV. But we thought that wasn't good enough. And we couldn't just write off a generation of people that were already infected. And that was actually quite a difficult argument to Mm. win because a lot of the people who were infected were not the most sympathetic of public constituencies. They were deeply marginalised in lots of the countries that we were operating in. So I'm really proud of our effect, uh, not just in policy terms or even in treatment number terms, but actually we did win that argument that you can't dismiss anyone's life as less valuable. And because we won that argument, those people are still alive. So actually the treatment movement now, or the HIV movement now, is really, I think, a movement led by affected and infected people Mm -hmm. in a way that it was much more a movement of people affected by the disease and their allies. Mm, mm. It was more of a movement of solidarity in the noughties and now it's a movement primarily led by 
people who are still alive only because of previous successes. Mm-hmm. I do think it's become much more... I mean, I'm not actively part of that anymore, although I engage with them a lot through a lot of the global processes for universal health coverage. And what you can see is that there's a very well-resourced and very active and very uh, effective uh, lobby still for uh, HIV, for the Global Fund, for those approaches. Um, It's not as sort of integrated into development as it was in those days. It's kind of become a, uh, I don't know, a bit of an industry. The Global Fund funds a lot of advocacy, uh, and now that advocacy is very directed towards making sure that those gains aren't lost as we're going into an era under the SDGs where actually we're rightly questioning whether aid is the right solution to things, whether actually what's going to guarantee health for people in countries is the decisions governments make about their own taxes and their own public services. Whereas uh, at that time, I think it was much more of a development rights argument going on. Um, and we could see the role that aid could play at that particular juncture when basically we argued that HIV was the single biggest threat to development in sub-Saharan Africa Um, and it felt a very credible argument at that time to say this is something completely exceptional, this is something that everybody needs to pile into because if the rise in the number of people infected and the rise in the number of deaths carries on without anything slowing it down then you know, the generations, the kind of active, intelligent, intelligentsia of countries are going to disappear, coups are going to ha- happen, um, there's going to be a collapse of governance. And it genuinely seemed that that was potentially something that could have happened. And I think now we can see that it hasn't happened. I do think there's lots of other factors behind it, but this is one of them. The, 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 the point you mentioned about the, the potentially catastrophic effects is part of the story, isn't it, um, of how the issue of HIV campaigning moved from like, the domestic, what seemed to, to me in my formative years growing up in, in the UK, a domestic, you know, seemed like a domestic mm. issue in rich yeah. countries, something, you know, was happening um, you know, about intravenous drug users and gay men, and then suddenly it was this global issue which made you realise you know, this, was, this was affecting everyone. Mm. Can you say a bit about how the campaign moved from that domestic space into the international. I yeah, I mean that's kind of also my history, and I think quite a lot of people's history. I got involved in the early nineties in gay men's health work in the UK, and then in policy within the uh, within the health, NHS, and then in policy in Parliament. And I think there's a really strong link between the fact that there was this moral panic about HIV in the eighties and into the nineties, a perception that it was you know, going to get out of control uh, here in Europe or in North America. And I also think that had an effect on a generation of politicians in the 80s who were within the Labour Party in the UK, within the Democrats in the US, who basically listened to what people were arguing for, who responded quite well to that, who came to understand HIV as a relatively progressive cause that they should support. And then when it appeared that that kind of apocalyptic vision of what was going to happen in the UK wasn't happening, and then later it was recognised that it was happening in sub-Saharan Africa to that scale, then I think there was a generation of politicians who'd gone into power by that point who were already sensitised to the issue and already knew activists within their local parties, within their local communities, people who are advocates within government ministries or within parliament, 
and they responded to that. So they kind of knew HIV, there's something progressive that we need to support this. And when we were able to offer something that they could do about it, then I think they were ready to act on it. I think there was a, there was a sort of weird tripartite constituency before it got to some politicians on the progressive side of politics in different countries were relatively far-sighted about it and then of course there were some strange bedfellows where you know let's not forget it was a minister and a Thatcher government mm. that did the first public health campaign around this when Fark Fowler did the sort of tombstone public marketing around HIV so there were some far-sighted politicians from different traditions but actually the tripartite constituency that gave them space to act I don't think we spent a lot of time reflecting on so the the sort of human security element that there may be coups and governance collapses that was that was a really very visceral mm. fear of lots of decision makers largely because we're being told that by their armies so HIV was something that was affecting people who travel around a lot for work and they were taking mm. um, infection with them on their journeys so you had a lot of people in the security space alive to this that weren't alive to other development concerns mm. so there was a UN Security Council meeting yep about HIV in early 2000 and that was absolutely enormous because mm. there, there'd never been a security council meeting on an issue like this before so you had constituencies in the military and security forces who were worried about it when I started at the stockades campaign it was really interesting that a lot of our most progressive allies were in business so African based businesses or multinationals with large African footprints mm. were delivering treatment to their workers because they simply couldn't get a workforce that was healthy enough to do the job without providing when the state was not. And then, as Simon says, there was this third constituency um, rooted around sort of gay liberation politics that was both extremely effective because people have been fighting hard fights for decades together at that point, but also really well networked into the creative industries. So lots of those mm. people who'd been involved in gay liberation politics on both sides of the Atlantic were in journalism, they were in music there's a huge amount of art about AIDS and that sort of tripartite constituency created the space for politicians to act I think I don't think it would be fair to say that the politicians led it I think mm. I think the bravery and foresightedness of others created space yeah. that some of them then stepped into mm. but there was also a tradition of campaigning around AIDS treatment access which was particularly strong in the US and in France not so much in the UK, where the NHS was a bit slow to act, but it did act. Uh, but they had to, you know, stage die-ins. Uh, they had to form organisations like ACT UP that were very radical uh, and on the streets and taking part in often really creative, really shocking activism. And then those groups, lots of us who were involved in bits of that, ended up in international development. And some of those tactics and some of that motivation then came onto the, onto the global epidemic. And what you had was a constituency of people in Europe and North America who knew the topic, cared deeply about it, their own personal identity was, was integrally built, bound, bound up in HIV, you know, either by having HIV or being a community uh, that felt particularly vulnerable to it or allies of those communities. And they then were able to help to build a global movement with people in the South who were facing their own very different um, fights. And of course the Treatment Action Campaign in South Africa was 
really crucial to it because it was an African-led campaign against the pharmaceutical companies and against the South African government that then provided so much energy, you know, we borrowed it here in the UK, um, uh, from joining in the campaigns about the 39 pharmaceutical companies that tried to take the South African government to court. And I think that was also part of the groundwork that that there became, you know, lots of people knew about this. People were outraged when they found out that these companies were trying to stop the South African government from getting access to compulsory licensing of antiretrovirals. And so they sort of understood that there was a major injustice here about people's access to health campaigns. And you had a villain as well, which was the pharmaceutical companies. And... That then, kind of, when we moved on to well, what practically can globally be done about many more countries than South Africa, then you had this anger, this kind of, uh, kind of very vibrant civil society campaigning, um, and you had a villain, and it all sort of came together to mean that when we were campaigning for AIDS treatment access, because that was the big different thing about about the the run up to the G8, was we were talking about AIDS treatment for all. Um, then it was a very fertile kind of environment that people got this and they understood it. Um, I mean, I, I, I know the, um, you know, from ActionAid, one of the things we did, which uh, was always kind of, always be proud of, was we bought an old ice cream van and so we dressed it up. You remember it? You approved it. I think you signed it off at some point. And we dressed it up as George and Tony's Phony Pharmacy. And the whole point, it's a keeping AIDS medicines out of reach. And it's really interesting if you think back that we were basically borrowing a bit of villainy about George Bush and Tony Blair. This was after the Iraq war as well. So, you know, those two being associated with each other, we put their faces on it. We borrowed a bit of villainy from the pharmaceutical companies that there was some sort of pharmacy that was being denied to people. And we got lots of, we took that round university campuses uh, with the Student Stop AIDS campaign and lots of other people participating in it. It's just Action Aid was crazy enough to buy the, buy the ice cream van um, and got people to sign petitions about it. Um, and it's interesting kind of when you look back that in effect, you know, that getting that aid money for AIDS treatment ended up providing quite a lot of money to the pharmaceutical companies, the ones that we were sort of borrowing the villainy from. Um, but they were, of course, the ones that owned a lot of those medicines, and at least initially and before a lot of uh, different licensing agreements and more generics came from India, that was uh, where the money got spent, um, which is ironic, really. Can I just say, on yeah. that, that sense of villainy, though, one of the things I think that's interesting about it as a campaign compared to other development ones was the highly individualised nature of it. So mm-hmm. going back to Cut the Cost, what Oxfam asked volunteers to do at festivals was sign action cards shaped like pills mm. that were addressed directly to the CEO of pharma companies. Mm, yep. So it was quite a personalised mm. form of mm. pressure mm. in that sense. And likewise in the Stoppies campaign, do you remember we had the Blairometer yep. where we had like an online graph that we said, you know, this is, this is an emergency. You need to be doing something about it every month. Mm. And Blair's head would move up or down yeah, depending on what we thought he'd done that month. And so yes. the, the graph of his progress was charted and one of the reasons it was highly individuated when you were saying somebody was falling short was also our heroes were highly individuated and mm-hmm. that's not true of other forms of development campaigning mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the Terence Higgins Trust is named after a real person whose life story that you can come to mm-hmm. understand of what it was like for his partner and his parents not being able to 
get, get to him in hospital, you can mm. imagine how distressing that must have been. And then there was just a lot of very famous, affected people. So yeah. Freddie Mercury is a mm. larger-than-life character that we were all massively familiar with yep, yeah. growing up. So it was just... It, it feels very um, personal and relatable and human in a way that, you know, we were also involved in trade justice activism, but here's mm. a farmer who's being hard done by. Mm. It's harder to grasp onto the individual story, whereas yeah. someone like Zaki Akhmat, the reason the treatment action campaign was so inspiring for everybody, mm. even though there were treatment activists all over Africa and indeed the world, Zaki refused treatment until other people could get it. Zaki said, yeah. I'd rather die live on television than take this when mm. my brothers and sisters can't have it. Mm. And that sort of individual sense of this is a thing happening to a named person that you could research and name your children after mm. was really different to other forms of activism, I think. And, uh, I'll come back to treatment action campaign in a minute, but um, just in terms of how then you move from a situation where you know this, this had gone for, you know, from the domestic to the international, and as you talk about the UN... You know, being concerned, it sounded like there was a driver coming from, as you say, business, security, military, all, all you know, all, all of those drivers. And then there was this sort of big phase of campaigning. It's probably difficult to sort of measure this or, or say it concretely. But to what extent do you think that it was the campaign and the campaigning activities that you talked about that drove it up the agenda versus just? it was going to do that anyway is it diff- is it possible to say the difference that the campaign made or did you just speed up what was happening or I think, how we, you see it? I think we probably can say that definitively about the US I think if campaigners so act up mm-hmm. doing so much in your face disruptive um, you know targeting presidential campaigns activism that just could not be ignored and I say that was partly because act up had spun out of gay liberation politics in in New York and in California people were really well networked into journalists who then wanted to cover the fact that they were acting disrupt, you know, acting disruptive questions at presidential hustings and so on they created a sort of media theatrical space where you could see that people were on the march but what activism did was then go and speak to US evangelicals who would never have come on board had there not been an active campaigning and quite theologically sophisticated mm. attempt mm. to bring them on board as an unexpected ally. So you had this really strange coalition of um, gay direct action coastal America on the march with Heartland and Bible Belt mm. America. And there is no way in which you know, Jesse Helms just spontaneously changed his mind. Mm. That's because he was courted by activist organisations right. who said, actually this is the modern leprosy there's like biblical antecedent for this there have always been people that have been stigmatised and discriminated and marginalised because of their health and we don't pass by on the other side do we? So people from faith communities did activism in their own communities to bring on board the biggest and most unexpected heavy hitters in the states and I just don't think that would have happened mm-hmm. without a long term plan was there, was there disagreement between some of those on the coming from more traditional communities about about treatment and uh, you know versus abstinence or you know other ways of dealing. Well, the dispute was mainly with I mean the U.S. government when they implemented PEPFAR, they implemented it with this ABC policy of abstain, uh, 
be you faithful. Be faithful and then condomise if you really can. What kind of word is that? But condomise if you really, really can't avoid the, the previous. Pet, and we all hated that. Pitfall was the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which was one of George Bush's things, which he announced at the same time as announcing the Iraq War in the same State of the Union address. So it was kind of on one hand, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm planning to go ahead with with that and on the other hand I'm launching PEPFAR and PEPFAR beneficiaries included various countries who were on the UN Security Council at that time so it was very it was very linked with that um, I don't know I mean there was a really interesting kind of clash with these kind of traditions of activism which have been going on for quite a long time and the political uh, thinking kind of process that led it up the kind of international agenda, mm-hmm. and then the traditional development NGOs, who of course had all worked together on the G8 in, in Birmingham in 99 and debt relief, and then knew there was another British G8 coming, and the development NGOs kind of started to work ready for that and ready for Make Poverty History. At the same time, they sort of realised there was a lot happening around HIV in Africa, and they were going to, they started to come into that and they created posts and they funded the Stop AIDS campaign. And then we had this kind of clash of traditions which played itself out throughout the Make Poverty History campaign um, and the way that it ended up becoming one of the signature commitments made by that G8, um, kind of in lots of ways, kind of despite actually the agreed parameters of what Make Poverty History was going to be. You know, it wasn't supposed to be about AIDS, it was supposed to be very pure on debt and aid and trade, very pure on the kind of policy levers around development. And because all this noise was going on in the constituencies of MPs or through the friends of, of, um, of decision makers, you know, when Make Poverty History set out its stall, actually AIDS kind of kept getting inserted back into it, as you'll remember, you know, I think it was famously some meeting with Blair where... Um, they said, well, we want to talk about debt and aid and trade, and it may have not been Blade, maybe you remember, but somebody said, oh yeah, and you want to talk about AIDS, of course, don't you? And all the development NGO CEOs had to go, yes, yes, of course we do, yes, that's also our fourth uh, area that we want to talk about. And somehow it kind of went under the radar through these networks of people uh, in different organisations. Because I think lots of these, you know, the thing about HIV in its early days is it was affecting gay men in all social classes so there were gay men who were civil servants who uh, had friends who were affected who cared deeply about the topic there were gay men and their allies working in private sector companies you know and they were all kind of taking that issue into their different organisations so even though the sort of tops of the organisations maybe hadn't got it on their radar initially it came in through um, people working together across organisations I think one of the things that's worth saying though about the difference between Europe and America, I think, so activism across the South led almost entirely by affected communities in North America led, let's say, by this strange coalition of sort of campus liberals, creative industries, direct activists and evangelicals. In Europe, I think one of the things that got us a lot of traction was the role of young people, Mm. so student and youth leadership made this have a dynamism in the eyes of politicians that was not there necessarily for the other development campaigns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
massive shout out to student partnerships worldwide that's gone on to be Restless who ran the Student Stop AIDS mm. campaign and had partners and allies all across Europe. One of the ways that young people could be mobilised on this that they couldn't on another issue is they could imagine it happening to them. Mm. So they were yeah. newly at university thinking a lot about their own sexual health and reproductive rights and they'll never know probably somebody from their halls of residence that gets river blindness mm. or who's frozen out of the European market for cotton. Yeah. The yeah. other things that we were talking about mm. yes. didn't feel relevant to them in Freshers mm. Week mm. but there are people like you in the UK just like you who have mm. HIV and that is also true of people globally mm. it meant that youth and student activism was more authentic and energetic I think on this mm. than it was on other development mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. Well I mean it lent itself to campaigning in a way that nothing since has been quite so uh, powerful you know how much we try and talk about child mortality or maternal mortality you just don't have a constituency of dedicated activists willing to devote 24 hours a day to to a topic you don't have people who are affected by child mortality who take it on as a lifelong identity that they're going to to live by whereas you do with HIV and that that was extremely powerful. We're going to take a short break there um, and we'll be back with Kirsty and Simon in, in a moment. with uh, Kirsty and Simon talking about HIV campaigning in the noughties. Um, now, we talked a little bit about the campaign getting inserted into slash sort of being captured by or added on to the Make Potty History campaign, but can we say a little bit about how um, the, uh, the issue got into the Labour Party manifesto, Simon? So, I mean, I don't know the, the, the kind of real story of it, but the story we always understood was that this, these Stop Aid campaign little prescriptions that people had signed on university campuses and lots of other places all got delivered to Downing Street and were in some box somewhere, and the Labour Party, or the kind of people within Number 10 who were trying to work out what the offer for the, for the, for the 2005 general election would be... Um, ended up suddenly putting it in there as AIDS treatment for all, exactly the wording that we wanted, which I always took to be a sort of look for something distinctive, something that would please the party, something that would um, be a good headline for a Blair-hosted G8 in Glen Eagles, the kind of second UK G8 of that Labour, of that Labour government. And again, it offered itself as a really clear injustice that could be righted. I mean, I was stunned, actually. I mean, both both Kirsty and I were candidates in that general election right. in, um, in very different types of seats. But, um, you know, to suddenly... When I, I remember seeing the draft manifesto and kind of sending it quickly to everybody, saying, it's in there, and couldn't believe it, because now, I mean, you can't imagine now a political party promising to arrange AIDS treatment for everybody in the world who needs it. That, that feels... 
such a bygone uh, approach. Um, but at that time, I think it, it kind of offered something really tangible in a way that probably debt, aid and trade didn't offer quite the same for Labour who wanted a manifesto that would you know, inspire people around their leadership of the G8 soon after the general election. Do you remember anything about how it got in? Yeah, so we, um, we were at a manifesto meeting with lots of colleagues from across the development sector and had been instructed to bring a manifesto-ready idea. Mm-hmm. So we went with a manifesto-ready idea, which was a sentence, and other people went with a, here's my 15-page briefing mm-hmm. about how we should do tariff reform, or lots of issues that are as important and in some ways more important mm-hmm. uh, and much more structural, but are just really hard to imagine ever being on a mm-hmm. pledge card. And I think we were blessed in the AIDS movement with lots of people who had come up through politics because it mm. be, because it had its roots in gay liberation politics in human rights frameworks we had lots of really savvy and quite dogged mm. rights experts mm. in our sort of political family and you will often find that people who are committed to rights will go and get involved in political activism they don't think there were charitable responses to most challenges mm. they mm. think there are structural state-based yep. responses to most challenges and if you want rights guaranteed you need a guarantor in the form of a both big and effective state so you tend to find those people involved in politics so i think it's it's not just happenstance that mm. the box of our like campaign collateral was found in number 10 it was taken to number 10 as part of a political strategy devised by people mm. who who knew their way around yeah. party yeah. politics, mm. party political policy making and so on. So I think I think we we played our hand well. Mm. But it doesn't sound like you had many opponents at this stage, but presumably the drug companies initially anyway provided some some opposition. We we were you aware of sort of counter lobbies happening? I don't remember that from the from the companies, and actually it was in their interests to have a big campaign supporting more treatment and raising more aid to spend on treatment. I mean, the drug companies, you know, they had to withdraw from their South African court case in 2001, and, you know, we now have a lot of links with different pharmaceutical companies, and, they, and people working for them now say it, it was still such a traumatic period for them because the reputation of the companies was... At, at rock bottom, uh, because of the publicity that was given to what they were trying to do in South Africa, there was nothing good anybody could see about what they were doing. And basically the, the outrage at them bringing that case led to them dropping it, and then I think they wouldn't have dared say anything really around that. I think behind the scenes they were you know, generally quite supportive, I think, of uh, a focus on treatment um, and HIV getting a bigger profile for those companies anyway that, that had a business in that. So I don't remember them by the time of uh, Make Profit History and the Stop AIDS campaign being against it. In fact, they probably funded some of it through some things. I think they were worried about TRIPS reform, though. Yes. So they were yeah. so TRIPS in terms of the intellectual property framework that governed them, the supply of generics. They were really anxious about Indian generics and mm. other sources of supply in the market. We were quite blessed with our opponents like in terms of great strategic PR missteps suing Nelson Mandela's government Mm. is a thing that 
I'd imagine their sort of general counsel and mm. PR company reflect on with some um, it's a misgi- case study, misgivings I'm sure now, yes. about whether that was ever likely to to be commercially successful um, in the long run as a sort of reputation management approach. So we had been lucky mm. that the the opposition that ha- was at its most ferocious mm. had, as you say, happened much earlier and gone so badly wrong. But yeah, yeah, all yeah. Cr- all credit to the companies, they did learn that mm. lesson. The the group of opponents that it's worth reflecting on, I think, is less a kind of organised lobby in that sense, and more. There were the stirrings in the mid-noughties, although nowhere near at the level they are now, of that community inside the UN bodies of traditional values. Um, And in a sense, this is the flip side of multilateralism becoming more democratic with power redistributed from the G7 and G8. that you do now in multilateral meetings hear much more of an organised resistance to precisely the communities that were most likely to benefit from our activism. Mm. So you did, you saw the stirrings of it. That's interesting. Is that, that is that countries we're talking about? Yeah. So Governments. I mean, so, so bear in mind the people most likely to benefit from our treatment activism were men who had sex with men sex workers injecting drug users so all communities that you now see countries actively Mm. targeting for organized state-based violence or imprisonment and those Mm. countries do often club together in international for to say we we just want to defend family values we're not homophobic or Mm. engaged in massive human rights infringements of these communities. We're just we're just defending family values. And you saw some stirrings of that, mm. I think, in the noughties. Not as in nowhere near as hot or as organised as it is now. You saw some stirrings of it in the noughties, but it wasn't very effective because the world was run by yes. a much smaller number of yeah, countries with was. a massive yeah. bias to and the, G8 the rich Western world. And the far more yeah. than the UN around that time. Whereas when the SDGs are being agreed, you know, it is a lot of countries that were deeply opposed to anything that might accidentally force them to recognise LGBT communities who insisted that they couldn't say, I've never understood why, but why they couldn't say every section of society but every segment because they felt segment tied them to economic groups whereas if you said the SDGs have to be achieved for every community they might find themselves committed to supporting uh, LGBT communities in their countries. But there was another group of opponents, actually, who were the kind of traditional development people, actually, who didn't really understand or agree that a focus on one particular cause was right. You know, whether it was kind of questioning aid and whether aid should be badged in this way for a particular topic, and I'm sure that was a debate we had and we would have had it within ActionAid. Uh, I remember having it with you and with others who kind of were saying, well, you know, we we fought for a long time for aid to be untied for budget support, for development of governments, for national ownership. How did we get around that? I can't remember. I think we could see which way the wind was blowing and and that we we therefore kind of uh, got pragmatic about it. But, But there was a strong argument that, you know, we shouldn't be allowing donors to pick and choose the topics they want to fund in countries and just because they have a constituency that tells them to do something about HIV 
then actually you shouldn't set up mechanisms like the Global Fund. Um, and it's interesting, the legacy of that still carries on that debate. We now call it a debate between vertical and horizontal approaches and a debate around whether you're interested in, in attacking and changing a few particular health problems or whether you're interested in changing the structure of health within developing countries and whether governments are taking on their responsibility. And we're still fighting that in the UHC world, actually, and I'm now completely on the other side, and now in the UHC world, I'm the one who generally is trying to head off people's universal health coverage, which is an SDG commitment. And it's kind of a, a kind of redress for this very vertical approach. You know, almost all of the increase in aid for health has gone for HIV, TB and malaria because that's been the global fund structure. And there's some pretty good evidence that the way that money has been given has not allowed countries to build comprehensive health systems. Governments have had to deliver for their donors rather than necessarily build a comprehensive health system. We published a report arguing that Ebola showed that, actually, that there wasn't a strong primary health care system. And although I realise I'm remembering the Stop AIDS campaign call as being all about AIDS treatment, there are actually three different bits to it. And one bit was AIDS treatment for all, but another was build strong, comprehensive health systems, don't do this through parallel structures, whereas, of course, PEPFAR went and did it completely through parallel structures. And then the third area was take um, intellectual property flexibilities and use them to make sure that people can get, that governments can access antiretrovirals at the lowest possible price. And then it, it led to me thinking that often the headline is all that ever gets heard anyway in a campaign because on the other two, really, there wasn't a lot. You know, the G8 didn't commit to, probably talked about trips flexibilities, but it wasn't the headline. If I could just make a quick case for the defence. Um, I don't think it was as straightforward as there's donor energy around this, let's ride it. That's what way the wind is blowing. Mm-hmm. I think there is an argument, notwithstanding all of the risks associated with it, as Simon points out, and we should absolutely mitigate the risks. I think there was a legitimate argument at the time that AIDS was such an emergency. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to think back now when AIDS is, you know, well, HIV is a chronic condition and people, we have tons of long term survivors mm. and mm. it's a completely manageable condition. Um, certainly in, in the rich world, it's it's hard to remember now that we, we were talking about the AIDS apocalypse. Mm. Like, that was a yeah. really regular headline mm. um, from serious people. Mm. So that wasn't kind of ridiculous, overblown yeah. hyperbole. Yeah. That was a, a sort of media mainstay um, and a, a scientific and policy planning mainstay that we were facing at the complete wiping out of a working age population across sub-Saharan Africa in apocalyptic terms. So saying that that requires an emergency response, I think, is a legitimate... It's certainly a legitimate approach. It may not be, in the end, the optimal one, but it's a legitimate one. But secondly, now, I think you see some benefit of that approach to protections that are there for communities who simply wouldn't have them Mm. without the cover provided by international human rights activists. Mm -hmm. So, I say, if you look at the way... um, in Russia and various bits of Eastern Europe, injecting drug users are systematically targeted for the denial of human rights. If you look at the way trans communities across the world are, um, I say, targeted for violence, arrest, and appalling oppression, the fact that they are part of a sexual reproductive health mm. rights community 
I think offers protection globally. I think offers protection that might not otherwise mm. be there. Yeah, and that was driven by the, by a sense of solidarity rooted in an emergency. Mm. So when you say people were willing to do it twenty four seven, that was not just identity based solidarity. That was identity based solidarity was the only weapon we had against mm. this what was perceived to be an absolute tide. Yes, and you can debate. Kind of, we do all constantly debate kind of what what you can attribute to aid, but actually in this case, we know that you know, African leaders suddenly walked around for a few years wearing red ribbons. Um, people got access to treatment that they wouldn't have got otherwise. Those things weren't going to happen without a budget coming from donors because it was such a stigmatised topic, uh, because governments didn't want to go anywhere near it, because whatever the kind of um, profile of HIV in a sub-Saharan African country, it was so heavily associated with gay men, with drug users, with sex workers, uh, that it was always going to be the last thing Mm -hmm. on a list for a a conservative African government. And yet, when millions were on offer from the US or from the Global Fund, then it did get them to do something about it. So it's, it's, it's one that gives me a lot of kind of pause around my concerns around aid distorting national agendas, my concerns around aid aid that's badged for particular topics. You know, this is definitely one where uh, things weren't happening because of a grassroots movement in that country or politicians in countries that were getting towards, you know, 15, 20% prevalence rate among kind of sexually active adult population. They still weren't doing anything. And... And so in this case, you know, it really turns something around. The legacy of it, of it continues to be difficult because, you know, we still haven't... The way we give aid is still not right and still doesn't help to build national systems. OK, sorry. We, uh, I, we need to stop in a moment, but I wanted to ask you both one, one final question, which I think, particularly f- from where you both sit now, would be important for me to get your, your views on, and that is... Uh, do you think you could replicate that campaign, you know, albeit you know, in different different circumstances, but that kind of campaign today, or, 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 or other aspects of it that you know wouldn't fly, wouldn't get funded, you can get funding for, or you know, you wouldn't be able to build the momentum. I don't know, but do you think you could still do that today? I mean, on health topics, we've tried and we can't. Basically, we can't recreate this for children dying before the age of five or for women dying in childbirth. Um, it, it's really difficult to find any kind of constellation of stars that allows something like that to happen again. Um, maybe, maybe it shouldn't, you know. But it's difficult enough to do it for development. Now, is, that, for, is that because it's? Is that because of the issue? Uh, or is it because of the circ- you know the circumstances that the world we live in now? I think some of it is replicable, you know, but it requires some of the people who did the most effective work for us come along once in a generation. So I have, to the consternation of lots of my friends and family, I have such an enormous soft spot for Princess Diana, like. The, the Princess Diana 
was willing to not just engage in the topic of AIDS but embrace people dying of AIDS mm -hmm. on camera, the most photographed person on the face of the earth who knew better than anybody how to do visual campaigning, mm -hmm. knew the power of that embrace. But <laughs> someone that famous willing to do that thing doesn't come along mm. every so often, so it, it would require a level of fame and willingness to provoke mm -hmm. that doesn't come along every year and just can't be moved from campaign to campaign to campaign. So mm -hmm. I think something will come along like this that has that mix of celebrity, fame, security, economic imperative, political imperative, a pre-existing art movement architecture that we were blessed with from, from gay liberation politics. Something will come along that's not exactly the same but has enough of it. So I'm, I'm less pessimistic than you think. But it's also been very difficult for development campaigning to replicate anything on the scale of Make Poverty History since. You know, that kind of optimism that rich countries were willing to do something reasonably good could be pressured to do it by their population, by their voters. Um, that the G8 was a mechanism for doing that. We don't even think that really anymore. The G8, we don't expect to do anything very good. Um, we don't, we're kind of tr fighting to hold on to development as a topic and as a, as a kind of obligation in the face of governments at the moment that are much less um, supportive of it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the mass turnout the, in Edinburgh, the, um, the Live Aid in... Um, in London and other cities around the world, you know this 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 infrastructure that was there from the development campaigns, of which the HIV campaign was was one part of it, probably a fairly fast moving and creative, and probably more better at communication actually in lots of ways um, uh, element of it, um, but it was within the much larger make poverty history, and you know we haven't found a way of doing that again. Okay. Great. Well, thank you both for your, for your thoughts. They've been really, really fascinating. So thanks very much.